In our current series of messages this month, uh, we first focused on life in the Spirit from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. We saw how we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit and to keep on being filled with the Spirit and live a life that is surrendered to God's presence and His purpose for us. We're to walk carefully as wise people and make the most of the time because the days are evil that we live in. Along the way, we understand what the will of the Lord is for us, and God fills us with joy as we show our gratitude to him for the grace that he extends to us in our lives. Then we focused on what it means to live life as a disciple from Acts chapter 14. A disciple of Jesus is a learner who's willing to follow him in order to be like him, and we saw the New Testament pattern of making disciples, where the gospel is proclaimed, people come to faith in Jesus, they gather together to begin to grow, whether that's in a new church or an already established church, and they live out their lives in Christ, abiding in him, imitating him. And that's what life as a disciple is all about. Today, our focus is on life in the church. And the final two messages in this short series are going to be life in community and then life on mission. So if you will, make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look together at verses 12 through 27 and read these verses here in just a moment. It's not difficult to identify the lack of commitment that we see in many people's lives all around us, or maybe that we're tempted to in our own lives as well. We see a lack of commitment reflected in people's relationships, certainly in their vocation, and especially in the church, which is our concern today. One researcher in addressing the noticeable drop in attendance among all denominations in recent years uh, revealed several areas of influence that are really shaping or fashioning people's diminishing commitments. The study cited increased mobility for people, so they're not putting down roots like they might have in generations past. They're moving around, and because they're moving around, their commitment to a local body is not as significant as it should be for their spiritual health. Another reason that was cited is a growing affluence. We are victims of our own success because the more resources we have, the more life tends to be distracting. Also, the trends in technology that make it seem like it's easy to stay connected, but in reality, it's shaping us to be more impersonal rather than more relational. And then we have a preoccupation with entertainment. We want to be entertained as a society, so we'll go here and there to get entertained, and we can only fit in life in the church when it's convenient. There's another study that was done that added to that list a higher focus on kids' activities as well as increased travel in general. And, of course, that is a pre-COVID study. One researcher noted that about 20 years ago, a church member was considered active in the church if they attended three times per week. But today, by most measures, 
uh, it's considered that people are active if they attend three times a month. And in many circles, it's even lower than that. Uh, U.S. church membership has dropped like a rock over the last 20 years. If you look at places in our own state, it's my understanding, according to research, that there are outerlying counties in West Virginia where 90% of the people are unchurched. Just let that sink in for a moment about the mission field that we have even in our midst. As a result of all of this, some churches have decided that it's just best to drop the bar, to lower the bar of expectation, thinking that if you ask less of people, you're going to get more involvement. It's going to draw more people. That's not what happens. In fact, when we ask less of people, people do less and they are drawn toward even less engagement. And all of these things are shaping and reshaping our thoughts and our values. And I'm convinced that there are many people who are even well-meaning people who have gotten so caught up in their lives in this consumer mentality that their faith becomes marginal at best and they fail to understand the biblical principles on the importance of life in the church. And if we don't see a spiritual renewal and revival in the coming years, many more churches are going to struggle and countless more churches are going to be empty and closed as the generations pass. I begin reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. In those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the whole body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable. So that there will be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ 
and individual members of it. The Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe the believer's relationship to the church. A body, as in this passage, a temple, a flock, and a family. In 1 Corinthians 12, the dominant metaphor of the church as the body gives us insight into how God values it, how it's organized, and the importance of our functioning as healthy parts of that body for the glory of Christ. We know that the human body is wonderfully complex, but even in its complexity, it is unified and interrelated in its parts. The human body operates as a unit, and if parts of the human body are separated, they cannot function with the unity of the body. And spiritually, no Christian is saved in order to operate independently. A Christian is like a hand, a foot, a toe, or any other part of the body. We are only as healthy as we are connected to the body and that the body be healthy and functioning. It's interesting that the designation of a church member is in fact a biblical term. And in the passage that we just read, Paul refers to the believers at Corinth as members of the body of Christ five times. He's speaking of their connection to the local church, not just the universal church. The metaphors show us that church membership is about far more than having our names on a list. Rather, it shapes how we choose to live. Christ is the head of the church. Disciples are a part of the body and each of us has a different function. And it's also important to note in this passage that it is God who has arranged the parts of the body as he sees fit. And he's the one who's put the body together. So it's not up to us to decide what function we have. That's up to God's spirit. It's up to us to be surrendered and engaged, fulfilling the role that God has called us to. So in these few moments that we have together, let's consider some characteristics of life in the church. And let's ask ourselves a personal question of application. Why is the church important to my life? That question might be for you, should the church be important to my life? But if you are already a part of his church, why is the church important to my life? Well, the first characteristic here is that life in the church is anchored in truth. Now, what I want to do is I want to take this passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want us to think about it as the basic framework of our interconnectivity and our dependence on the Spirit and on the will of God. And let's take from there some application points of these characteristics of how the church is to carry this out. So it's not so much an exposition that I want to give you of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but rather a framework of how the church should be as the body of Christ and what life in the church looks like. Life in the church is anchored in truth. 
First Timothy chapter three and verse 15 says, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And then here's how he designates it. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Now it's important to understand that we don't create the truth. We don't even determine what the truth is. It's the holy character of God that defines truth. Everything flows from who he is and what he has said is true. We are, though, communicators of the truth. Truth is absolute and truth is independent of us, but yet we are dependent on that truth and we've been given the role to communicate it. So it isn't that the church is the foundation for the truth, but that the church holds up the truth so that the world can see it. There's an example given by one commentator, uh, similar even to our own day, of how pillars in that day were used in order to fasten public announcements that were going to be made to the world of something that was going to be taking place. And he draws that analogy and he says, in a sense, the truth is published, supported, and defended by the church. The church as a gathered body of believers has the responsibility to know and to communicate the truth of God's word and the gospel to the world. Part of that responsibility is also that the church is the guardian of truth. We're warned in the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4 of a time that would come uh, when people would not listen to sound teaching and in fact they would reject the truth. Boy, have we ever arrived in that age. This is the day that we live in where sound teaching is not easily received and people want to create their own sense of truth and morality. There was a Barna study that reflected a majority of people in our country of adults who were surveyed believe that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. In fact, in that one study, it showed that 60%, almost 60% of people believe that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. This is particularly prevalent among younger people who are continually saturated by a culture of me, by a world of I, we, I, me, I define my own reality, my own truth. You can't tell me anything. There is nothing that is absolute. There is nothing that is certain. I define it as I go along. And it's particularly more difficult for the younger folks who are immersed in that constantly to really find their grounding and understand that their lives can be anchored in something that is lasting and to counter and correct the compromise in the rejection of truth. We are told to carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to us. Second Timothy chapter one and verse 14 life in the church is anchored in truth. The second characteristic is that life in the church is rooted in salvation. It's rooted in salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. 
Verse 4, but God, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. These verses are a wonderful summary of the gospel. That the gospel is not what I can do or you can do. The gospel is about what God has done in Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, has made us alive with Christ. You might have heard the hymn of old, The Love of God by F.M. Lehman. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, the love of God, how rich and pure. There is a spiritual parallel to a physical reality. When we are physically born, we enter into the earthly realm. When we are spiritually born again, we enter into the heavenly realm. We are transferred from darkness to light. We are born again and brought into the family of God. And when we're born again and brought into the family of God, we are thereby committed to Jesus Christ and we are committed to his church. And we're rooted in the salvation that God has given us as a gift. Listen to what part of our church covenant says. As members of God's covenant family known as the Cross Lanes Baptist Church, we commit ourselves to God and to one another to be Christ-like in our lives and our relationships through the presence, guidance, and power of God's Holy Spirit. This is a result of the salvation that we have in Christ. The third characteristic is that life in the church is organized under Jesus, the chief shepherd. So truth is our foundation. We're rooted in salvation when we've been born again. And then we organize ourselves in order to carry out life in the church and to be faithful to the mission God has given us. Now, our unifying focus in all of this is that the head of the church is Jesus Christ. He's the head. And you know, a lot of times when churches get off track and there's conflict and there's problems and there's confusion, you know what the number one reason for that is? It's not the issues that are at hand, not ultimately. The number one issue for that is when people take their eyes off of Jesus Christ And they get their eyes on themselves and they think about their own preferences and what they want. And all this selfishness comes in rather than continuing to focus on Jesus as the chief shepherd, as the head of it all. That's where trouble comes. Hebrews 13 and verse 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I think it's so important 
If things do go sideways, whether it be in a personal relationship in the church or some type of uh, organizational dynamic that we're dealing with or maybe decisions that we're trying to make, I think it's so important for us to proactively look and see within our own hearts if we're focusing on Jesus as the head, mutually submitted and surrendered to him, And if he's leading the way, because he truly is the one that we follow. And then as we follow the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, we have human leaders within the church who are comprised of pastors. The word also is used in the scripture. Elder, another word that's used is overseer. I think all these words are interchangeable, talking about the same office. The qualifications are described in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5. But they all come down to the basic function of the under-shepherds. And the basic functions of the under-shepherds are prayer and ministry of the word and equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what we're to be about. Uh, We have to do things that are otherwise related to the organization of the church. But this is the heart of what we ought to be about. And just like churches get off track sometimes, pastoral leaders can get off track sometimes if they're not focusing on the main things that Jesus has called them to. So one of the best things that you can do for us is to pray for us and to help us stay focused on prayer and ministry of the word and the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Because that is our calling from God. And then there are deacons who I think arise in Acts chapter 6 and are outlined also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons have the role of doing what is necessary to support the pastors in accomplishing their God-given calling of shepherding and teaching. Deacons are spiritual servants who seek to minister to the church and meet physical needs as well as assist in the spiritual activities of the church. And we've been blessed through the years with men who, while are they are imperfect, love the Lord and love his church. And we've seen some of our most faithful men graduate to heaven into the presence of the Lord. We've seen others that had to move away because of vocational changes and other life circumstances. But God has always provided for this church men who desire to serve him and serve the body. And I said in the earlier service that in all the years that I've been here and all of the deacons meetings that I've been involved with, while we have wrestled with some difficult issues and we have at times disagreed about minor things and worked through uh, various relational things, I have never in all my years here ever been in a bad gathering of deacons. I've been blessed that these men are not only servants of the church and servants of the Lord, but they're also personal friends and supporters of mine as we co-labor together. And you need to be praying for them, that they would be able to carry out their responsibilities to serve the church as well. And then finally, the membership of the church includes everybody who's professed faith in Jesus, uh, functioning as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Every member of the body of Christ is to be involved in service to the Lord with their spiritual gifts for an effective and faithful congregation to function. 
And the mission of the church is to glorify God and make disciples, leading people to faith and building them up toward spiritual maturity. So as we follow the chief shepherd, how we describe ourselves as far as how we're organized as a church is that we are pastor-led, deacon-served, ministry team implemented, and congregationally accountable. Meaning that we have a congregational form of government under the lordship of Christ, functioning with the offices in the church that the Lord has given us, with all of us seeking to look to Jesus himself as our head. And you need to be praying for the continued healthy functioning of our church so that we can be as faithful as possible in the mission of God. And then the fourth characteristic is that life in the church includes intentional accountability. Now, this is not our most favorite point here because none of us particularly like being accountable. But the reality is we all need accountability. And the church should be a place where members are accountable to God and accountable to one another. That does not mean that a church will be perfect, far from it. But what it means is that the church will be a gathered group of forgiven sinners who are collectively following Jesus, who desire to be accountable to him and to one another. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. It's not smart at all. And we're in a culture that promotes freedom without restraint. You can't tell me what to do. You can't give me any guideline. Remember, if I define my own truth, then I'm not going to be accountable to anybody but myself as my own God. But freedom without boundaries brings chaos. Jesus Christ came to set us free. But he came to set us free and to give us godly boundaries. And the freedom that we have in Christ is the power from uh, to have freedom from sin and death and freedom from self-centered living so that we can live life for God and live life to the fullest. And we're called to hold each other accountable to what the Bible teaches. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. And then verse 2 says, Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So what God does is God brings discipline and chastening into our lives. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 12. As a good father disciplines their children, God, as our father, disciplines and chastens us to get our attention and to help us grow. And as we apply these accountability principles in the church, corrective discipline is always with a heart of leading people toward repentance and restoration. The intent is never to be punitive. God alone is the one who judges But yet, we seek to bring people to a place of repentance and restoration. And we read about the uh, very concept of that in Matthew chapter 18 and also 1 Corinthians 5. And I believe that the reason a lot of people won't commit to the church is because they don't want to be accountable to God or to anybody else. While accountability may not be pleasant or easy, it is necessary. So I ask you this question as we come toward a close. 
Are you investing your life in the church for the glory of God and for your good? Did you know every day you have to determine where to maximize your investment of time, talents, and treasures? These are all gifts from God that he has entrusted to you. If you have deposited your life, so to speak, with Jesus Christ, then he's deposited the precious treasure of the gospel with you. And he wants you to guard it while you hold on to him and hold on to the gift that he's given you as he holds on to you. And I would say to you today that if you are following Jesus and are committed to the church, then you need to pray for the church that you'd be a more faithful part of it. And just ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit based on his word, what does it look like for you to be faithful? And how would God be shaping your life in that direction? And if today you don't know the Lord Jesus, you don't know the head of the church, it'd be a wonderful time to take that step of faith and repent of your sins and believe in him and enter into the family of God, committed to Jesus and committed to his church. And if you know Jesus, but you've not yet committed to be a part of his church, he wants you to be committed. Do you know there are a lot of people that want to just stay on the fringes of, of church life? They don't want to get in too close because if they get in too close, there might be accountability. There might be responsibility, which they, many people also don't want. But here's what they're failing to see. If you lean in and you make that commitment, you won't regret it. The blessings will far outweigh anything that you think would hold you back. Jesus didn't go halfway in for you. So why would you stay on the fringe and say that you're following him? Step into a life of discipleship. And a life of discipleship is going to be a life that is connected to the church. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, I don't know where folks are today. I know that there are many faithful people here in this room. They have a humble attitude to honor Jesus with their lives and to be a part of a healthy church that is carrying out the mission of God as best we know how. I thank you for every faithful saint that is now a part of this body. We thank you for all who have gone before us, who have committed their lives and sacrificed their resources and given of themselves that we would be where we are here today as blessed people who have a spiritual home, a spiritual place where we can gather and worship and serve. I pray if there are any who are not yet followers of Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would lean in and take that first step of faith and understand that Jesus is truly the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. And God, we ask that you would put your protective hand on this church, continue to guard us and keep us, And through it all, that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would see as we emerge in the months to come from this moment of circumstance that we find ourselves in, that we would be in a place of renewal and even revival and that your spirit would work in us in a 
in a fresh way that we'd not be discouraged, but we'd be encouraged. We'd not look backwards, but we would look forward and understand the blessing of following Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.